What a glorious day of worship together. Sometimes in our lives we are on the mountaintop. Today is one of those mountaintop days. Sometimes it is otherwise. It's interesting that that pattern is also something that we see in the Upper Room Discourse. Uh, while you're turning to John chapter 15, as we continue with Jesus' teachings to his disciples right before he would be taken from them, just want to review that to this point, although Jesus has shared some, some shocking things with the disciples, the fact that he would be leaving them, he has offered them much encouragement and comfort. He has spoken to them of his great and sacrificial love for them. He has let them know that even though he would be taken, taken away, his presence with them would continue. He would never abandon them uh, as that is manifested through the presence of the Holy Spirit. He's talked about the fact that they're not out there trying to accomplish things on their own, that as they remain connected to Him, His life flows through them uh, to those around them. He has spoken incredible promises that the disciples would do the very things that Jesus has been doing and would do even greater things than those, and He told them that He would answer their prayers. He has had many encouraging and many comforting words to share with them. And today, we come to some of the more challenging and difficult words that Jesus has to share with them. But that is good, because otherwise we might feel deceived, thinking, hey, we're going to just live on the mountain. Everything's all straight up from here. Um, we don't always see that in our lives, and Jesus not only acknowledges that, but prepares us for how we should live in light of suffering and in light of persecution in the world. So let's read together. John chapter 15, we'll start at verse 18. It's a rather lengthy passage as we go through chapter 16, verse 4. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have hated both me and my father but this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. 
All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think they are offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. Jesus makes it very clear in this passage that the world hates him. Of course, as you read through the Gospel of John, as you read through any of the other Gospels, it becomes clear from the very beginning. We read in the book of Matthew at the very beginning, after Jesus was born, how Herod the king was filled with fear and with hatred towards Jesus and ordered the destruction of everyone under two years of age in that region, hoping to eliminate the threat that Jesus brought to his power and to his rule. Jesus escaped that, but you know the very first sermon that he preached, the people wanted to throw him over the edge of a cliff because the words that he spoke challenged the status quo. They challenged what they understood to be true uh, in the spiritual world and of God's working in the world, and they wanted nothing to do with his teaching. As Jesus continued to teach, most people responded with unbelief and with accusations. He was called a blasphemer, a lawbreaker, a friend of sinners. He was accused of being demon-possessed and insane. Indeed, some of those who began to follow him turned away because they said his teaching was too hard. Early on in the Gospels, we begin to read of the plots against Jesus' life. We see how stones were taken up to execute him, but he escaped. And yet in the end, his enemies arrested him. He was mocked. He was beaten. He was spit upon. He was tortured. And he was subjected to the most cruel and vindictive death that man could imagine because he was hated. Now, we also know that that death is the death that brought us salvation because when he went to the cross, people were intending to pour out their hatred on him. But what actually happened was that Jesus, the sinless Son of God, took upon himself our sin, took upon himself our sin, bore upon himself the righteous wrath of God on all of human sin, died in our place, as we saw a testimony here, delivered over to death because of our sins, but then raised to life for our justification, to bring new life, to bring hope, to bring a future to everyone who believes in him, to bring forgiveness, justification, and righteousness. That is what God intended, but what man believed is that he was pouring out all of the hatred, all of the vindictiveness that was stored up in human hearts towards Jesus. He was hated. He was hated because of what he said and did. He was hated because his words challenged the 
comfortable status quo of the religious powers of that day. He was hated because when he spoke with a tax collector like Zacchaeus, when he spoke with a woman caught in adultery, instead of speaking condemnation, he spoke grace and love and then called to true repentance. He was hated because in his words he pointed out the hypocrisy and the sinfulness of the world around him and called to faith in Jesus Christ. We've already talked in this upper room discourse about how everything that Jesus said and did pointed people to the Father. Jesus was hated not only because of the things he said and did, but he was hated because of his character. His very character, his holiness, his love, the grace and the truth that he spoke pointed out the moral and the spiritual bankruptcy of the world around him. You know, before Christ came, before there was a physical comparison, one could feel pretty good about oneself. Hey, you know what? I'm doing some of these things that are written in the law. I'm not such a bad person. I help people. I don't walk too far on the Sabbath. I, I read the Scriptures. Before the image of Jesus Christ being set before them, it's pretty easy to feel good about oneself. But once confronted with who He is, we pale in comparison. And so He was hated for His character. Harry Ironside's a very familiar but somewhat old commentator told the story of a missionary among a tribal people who had a mirror in his house. And the wife of the chief of that tribe came for a visit. She had never seen a mirror before. And as she walked past, she, she caught a glimpse of it, and she was terrified. Finally, it was explained to her, and she realized that that was a reflection of her own image. And as she looked in that reflection, she saw the lines of time and of weariness and of even sin and hatred. She saw the painting that was so fearsome, and she did not like what she saw. She asked if she could buy that mirror, and the missionary didn't have another one, so he said, no, tried to be very gentle in declining that, and she started to insist. And he's dealing with the wife of the chief. He knew he might get himself in some trouble if he didn't acquiesce, and so he agreed to the sale, and she bought that mirror and threw it to the ground and said, it will never make faces at me again. She hated that mirror because it made it see her self as she was. That's the character of Jesus. People looked on him, and they heard him, and they hated him, because it made very clear both their bankruptcy and their neediness of a Savior. 
Now, it's really interesting that sometimes the world doesn't hate Jesus. There are aspects of his character that are admirable and attractive to anyone. His kindness, his gentleness, his love, his forgiveness. And we can be drawn to those things, but that is actually being drawn to an idol that is made in our own image. It is very natural for us to want a Jesus who is only pleasing to us, who is never a challenge to us, who only affirms us where we are and never makes us uncomfortable and calling us to something new and something different. We have heard, my Jesus wouldn't do something or the other. In fact, sometimes we have thought, I really wish that this weren't true about Jesus. It would make it a whole lot easier to be comfortable in this world. That, my friends, is not looking at Jesus for who he is. That is looking at Jesus trying to make him more like us. But when we look at Jesus for whom he really is, not just the things we like, but the things that challenge us, a few will follow and obey. But many respond with hatred, rejecting him. And then Jesus makes clear in this passage, rejecting those who follow him. The world hates Jesus, and the world hates people who follow Jesus. The reason becomes clear in verse 21 that we read together. Let's see it again. They will treat you this way because of my name. When we identify ourselves with Jesus, we are taking his name upon ourselves. You remember earlier we talked about praying in Jesus' name. Praying in Jesus' name isn't saying a magic formula that will get us whatever we want. It's not the way that we signify that we're bringing prayer to a conclusion and can move on to sharing the meal together. Praying in Jesus' name means that we are praying about the things that agree with his character and with his will. Praying in Jesus' name is the difficult process of putting aside the things that are not his will and do not conform to his character, the things that would please us but that he does not desire for us, and instead adopting the things that align with his will and character for our lives. Well, Jesus says we don't get to merely pray in his name. We also get to live in his name. We get to identify ourselves with his name, taking his character upon ourselves. And so if they hated the character of Jesus, then the more we reflect his character, we will be hated. The more we identify ourselves with him, we will be hated. This baptism was a beautiful thing. But parents of those two beautiful girls, <laughs> remember that that was an identification with Jesus Christ, and it will bring suffering in the lives of those young ladies and of every one of us who dares to identify ourselves with Jesus Christ. 
In the two previous verses, Jesus had spelled out a couple of reasons that identifying ourselves with his name brings the hatred of the world. In verse 19, he says, If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Jesus is saying that he has looked upon those who follow him and has taken them out of the world to himself. That makes us different. We no longer belong to the world. Instead, we belong to him. And so we are hated because we have been chosen and we have been made distinct from the world around us. We hate things that are different, don't we? If you're walking down the street and somebody comes along and, I don't know, they're wearing some crazy hat. You know, it's, there's just this natural instinct. What is wrong with that person, right? The story is told of the first person who invented and carried an umbrella. I believe it's a true story. I actually read his name somewhere. So here he is in England, the rain's pouring down, everybody's getting soaked, he's walking along with an umbrella. And he gets pelted with dirt and stones and mud. What, you think you're better than we are? Type of thing. He was just different and we hate what is different. And Jesus says, I have made you different, I have made you distinct. That naturally draws hatred, but, but that's speaking merely of an outward human characteristic of hating what is different. What's going on in this verse is much deeper. It's not simply hatred of what is different. It is a war that is going on and has been going on since the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve fell into sin and brought all of us along with them, and God spoke judgment upon the serpent and upon the man and the woman, he said that there would be enmity. There would be enmity between the serpent and the seed or the descendants of the woman, and in specific, the seed, Jesus Christ, the descendant of the woman. And that cosmic battle that was put in place on that day continues to this day. The kingdom of those who follow Jesus against the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of this world. And so you follow it through the Old Testament in which you have the people of Israel who are surrounded by the idolatrous, false gods of the nations. And the kingdom of Israel is placed against and is in warfare against the kingdoms of Egypt or Babylon. It's a cosmic battle in which God is calling his people to come out and be his own. That battle continues in the New Testament. Paul talks in these terms. He talks about warfare. He talks about a battle which is not against flesh and blood, but which is against a spiritual world that is aligned against us and desires to bring about our destruction. 
And so we see in the history of the church the battle between the church and Rome. And you can read the pages of Scripture right up to the present day and what is to come. Read the book of Revelation from this perspective in which the dragon, that's the same serpent as back in the garden, in which the dragon is filled with vitriolic hatred towards the church because that is the locus of the kingdom of Jesus Christ on this earth. That battle continues to this very day And Jesus says to his disciples, I have chosen you out of the kingdom of the world and placed you into the kingdom of God. And so Satan, the enemy of Jesus Christ and the enemy of the church, is your enemy. And the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of this world, hates you because you follow Jesus Christ. You do not belong to this world. I have chosen you out of the world. And we will experience that battle. We are hated because of identifying with Jesus Christ. We are hated because we have been chosen out of the world and placed in the kingdom of God. And then Jesus says we are hated because we do and we say the things that he said and did. Verse 20, remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. Jesus is assuming in these verses that the disciples will do and say the things that he did and said. And so if they hated his teaching, they will hate your teaching. If they hated the things that he did, they will hate the things that you do. He is assuming that we are living our lives according to the pattern that he laid for us, and therefore, naturally, whatever response the world might have towards him is the same response that they will have towards us. Now, the good news is there are some who listen. There are some who respond. And so we keep talking about him, and we keep trying to live like he lived. But the bad news is that there are those who will respond with rejection and hatred. That very helpful image of the mirror should be applied to us as well. Our lives reflecting the character and reflecting the actions of Jesus Christ in such a way that some look at us and see their own need and hate us and want to destroy us because of it. Again, it's not because we're so very good, but it is because we increasingly must reflect the image of Jesus Christ, and therefore our lives draw the same response as the life of Christ. In this passage, we see several ways that we will actually experience the persecution that Jesus experienced. And first of all is simple personal animosity. Seven times in this passage, Jesus uses the word hatred. 
It's not the type of thing you often hear from the lips of the Savior. But he experienced it, and he wants to prepare us for it as well. Any of you who've been in the church for a little while heard Pastor Mitchell tell the story of a family that were members of Cary Alliance Church and were moving away. And they had packed up the moving van and were headed out of their neighborhood, and they saw someone carrying some food, obviously headed to a party or something like that. So they stopped and they rolled down the window and said, hey, what's going on? And they said, wave their goodbyes and whatever. Oh, party. Somebody have a birthday or whatever? No, no, we're all getting together to celebrate the fact that you are leaving our neighborhood. And that family drove to Pastor Mitchell's house in tears. They were hated because of the name of Jesus Christ. And Mitchell said, rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven. That's how Jesus told us to respond. That personal animosity, to some extent, is what we should experience in this world as we reflect the image of Jesus Christ. But there's more. In chapter 16, verse 2, Jesus prepared the disciples to be kicked out of the synagogue because of his name. Now, we might read that and think, okay. <laughs> you know, if you got kicked out of Cary Alliance Church, there's a lot of churches around here, and you could just show up, and they'd be very happy to have you, right? Or maybe you'd just get so sick of the church that you'd leave it behind, and you can live quite well in our world and in our society. You can make it by without having any religious affili affiliation at all. But for those who were hearing Jesus' words, this was a social death sentence. The synagogue was the center of religious and social and, by extension, economic life. Being kicked out of the synagogue meant there was no other spiritual recourse. There was nowhere else to turn. You were condemned. You were ostracized religiously and had no other alternative. It was not only a loss of religious life, it was a loss of social and family life. Being kicked out of the synagogue meant you were cut off in all of your relationships. And so the world around you hated you, but your own people hated you. You were left completely isolated. Even your own family would no longer associate with you. And you know what? There are places around the world where that's where it's like to believe in Jesus. You have to be willing to abandon everything. Economically, either you lost your job or if you were self-employed, you, you lost all of your clientele. There was nothing left for you. Jesus said the time is coming when, you, when people will lose everything because of their faith in Christ. And he calls his disciples to be prepared for that. And then, of course, he adds that the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think that they are offering a service to God. That wasn't just a vain prediction. It was only a couple of months later that Stephen would become the first martyr of the church, stoned to death 
because of his testimony about Jesus Christ. On that day, a great persecution broke out. You know, we read those words and think, oh, wow, that must have been awful. There were thousands of Christians in Jerusalem by that time, and there were people who went door to door, like the, like the apostle, <laughs> like the Pharisee Saul, who would eventually become the apostle Paul, went door to door hunting down Christians in order to throw them in prison so that they could be tried and executed for their faith. The entire church was scattered. We read that. Oh, they were scattered. They left everything behind because it was intolerable for them to live in that situation. People died for their faith. We read in the book of Acts about how James died for his faith. Church tradition tells us that every one of the apostles except John who was exiled, that every one of them died for their faith. We have read the stories of the martyrs of the church throughout the torturous years of the Roman Empire, but did you know that in the 20th century, approximately 26 million people around the world died for their faith in Jesus Christ? And that's why we pray for the persecuted church. But that type of persecution is something that we should be prepared for as well. In one way or the other, Jesus tells us that we will suffer if we identify with Jesus Christ. We might simply be hated, mocked, despised, excluded. We might have our advancement at the workplace blocked or even lose our job. We might lose customers, we might get canceled might have a social death sentence of some sort or the other pronounced us. The day might be coming when we might experience physical suffering because of our faith. This is a heavy word, but it's what Jesus tells the church we should be prepared for. And so I have some questions for us to consider in light of what he has to say here. And I don't have all the answers for these questions, and I don't imagine that we can just sit here and listen to him and answer them. This is some heavy stuff. I would encourage you to write down these questions. If you're part of a small group, talk about it together. If you just want to spend some time in your devotions this week considering these questions. First of all, am I being persecuted? And if so, why? Am I being persecuted? And why am I being persecuted? This passage started out in verse 18 with Jesus said, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Remember, in Jesus' language, there are several ways of formulating an if-then question or statement. And sometimes it doesn't really mean if. Sometimes it means since, or in this case, when. When the time comes that you are hated, it's going to come. He assumes it. This isn't a subjunctive conditional. This is a reality. When you are hated, keep in mind that I was hated first. And so, 
he tells us that this is part of the reality of being a Jesus follower. It's not just here. Jesus had told the disciples on multiple occasions earlier that they would be hated because of him. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the church in Philippi, and therefore in writing to all believers, said, it has been granted. Here's a gift. It has been granted to you not only to believe on Christ, that's great, but also to suffer for him. How can that be a gift? Well, Paul says elsewhere that we have a wonderful inheritance waiting for us because of Jesus Christ, if indeed we will suffer along with him. Paul writes to his disciple Timothy and says, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's not simply an assumption, it is a statement to us as believers. Persecution is inevitable in our lives. If the answer is yes, I have experienced persecution in my life, then another good question to ask ourselves is why is that persecution coming? Because Scripture makes it clear that there are good reasons to, be, to suffer and there are bad reasons to suffer. Jesus says that we will suffer because of his name. There's a good reason to suffer. Because our lives reflect the character and the words of Jesus Christ. Suffering in the name of Jesus is something that accomplishes great purposes in us and leads us to glory. But here's an interesting verse from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20, where Peter is writing to a church that is suffering, and he says, but how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable before God. Sometimes we bring suffering upon ourselves not because we are reflecting the character of Jesus Christ, but rather because we have aligned ourselves with something that others hate. It could be, you know, we're suffering because we're a criminal. That's pretty clear. Don't suffer for your criminal. No prize involved in that. But it could also be because I have aligned myself with a political system or with an economic system because I have begun to reflect something that is hated by part of the world in myself and the other part of the world hates me. We are to be persecuted because we reflect the character of Christ and our allegiance is him to, alone, to him alone and not because of other false allegiances or selfish gain that might be present in our life. This requires some wisdom on our part. The Apostle Paul was determined that the only stumbling block that he presented before the world around him was the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, he was willing to put up with all kinds of garbage if only he could clearly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he wanted to strip away any false stumbling block in his life. 
I believe we would do well to ask ourselves the question, if I am hated, why is it? And make sure that the only reason is our faithfulness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the question comes down to a question of allegiance and a question of integrity. There are going to be times that we have to take a stand for a, a spiritual principle and a moral principle that will bring us persecution because our integrity as a follower of Jesus Christ leans on it. I'm talking about the conversations that we are having about the workplace and the things that we are called to believe or to affirm. Now, it's an entirely different matter to clothe ourselves in the self-righteousness of those who are above all of the dirt and slime of the world and to communicate very clearly how much better we think about ourselves than the world around us and to draw upon ourselves the wrath of the world because of our self-righteousness. That is not what we are called to. But we are called to integrity. We are called to faithfulness to the good news of Jesus Christ. And at times that will bring the wrath of the world around us upon us. Am I being persecuted? And if so, why? The corollary then, second question, if I am not being persecuted, what is wrong? What distinguishes me from the world around me? Jesus makes it very clear. If we look like everybody else, then we're going to draw the praise of everybody else. Again, verse 19. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. Friends, if all we experience out there is praise for our upstanding character, something is wrong. If we are not experiencing persecution for the name of Christ, then it is an indicator that our values and aspirations and goals are too much like the world around us. Now, it used to be really difficult to distinguish ourselves from the world when it comes to values and aspirations and goals. We live in the Bible Belt, right? And it wasn't many years about many years ago that just about everybody had the same values that Scripture proclaims. That is changing. It's going to become more and more easy for us to stand out from the world around us because of the things that we value and proclaim. But there's another danger involved in this. And that is that in response to a hostile environment, we become withdrawn and protective of ourselves. Jesus said in this passage that he chose us out of the world. But in chapter 17, when he prays about us being chosen out of the world, he clarifies not that we have physically been removed, we still live in the world. We still interact with people who need Jesus Christ. We have been chosen out of the world as far as our spiritual nature, but are located in the world, and there's a reason for it that we're going to talk about in a couple of minutes. 
But the point is that we can create, for lack of a better word, a Christian ghetto of our church. It is our refuge. It's where we're comfortable. It's where people are like-minded. It's where we can enjoy the company without the awkwardness. And so we've got this program on Wednesday and this program on Thursday, another on Tuesday and then Saturday and then Sunday and then come back on Sunday night. And we manage to create for ourselves an environment that is safe because we have lost our interaction with the world around us. And Jesus calls us to be in the world, but not of the world. He calls us to maintain our connection with the world around us, as challenging and as painful as it might be. And there's a reason for it, and that is that when persecution comes, we will know how to respond. That's the third question. When persecution comes, how will I respond? How have I responded, and how will I respond? Jesus said in chapter 16, verse 4, he's telling them this so that they will be prepared. He's telling us this so that we can already have in mind what our response is going to be. He said in 16.1, he's telling them this so that they will not fall away. Now, the first response is, there's no way I'm going to fall away. I am ready to stand firm for the faith. Well, you know what? All of those disciples in the upper room said, there's no way that we would ever deny you. There's no way. We are ready to die for you. And it was only a few hours later that they were scattered and ran for their lives when the persecution started to arise. This is a word to me. This is a word to every one of us. We have to be prepared because we really can fall into sin, or fall away out of fear when persecution comes. We must be prepared for it, and specifically, we must be prepared to respond as Jesus wants us to respond, not responding in kind. Oh, how easy it is to respond to hatred with hatred, to anger with anger, to unkind words with our own unkind words. We are not to respond in kind. Instead, we are to rejoice and be glad. Acts chapter 5, the disciples were beaten for sharing their faith. And they went away rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering for the name of Jesus Christ. What's the difference between when they ran away and when they rejoiced and be glad? It was the presence of the Holy Spirit with them And so you have verses 26 and 27 in this passage. Pastor Cameron is going to talk about it more next week, but read this. When When the advocate comes, he will testify to the truth, and you also must testify. Our primary response to persecution is in the power of the Holy Spirit to continue to testify to Jesus Christ because our primary concern is the glory of Christ and the salvation of the world. They don't know any better. That's why Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. That's why Stephen said the same words as he was about to die. A response of compassion because of our understanding of spiritual ignorance and lostness and the meaning of eternity. Last one, 
Am I more like Christ or the persecutors? This one kind of blew me away as I was reading this passage. Never thought about it before. In verse 25, Jesus, talking about the haters, says it's written in their scriptures. They have hated me without reason. And then we already saw in 16.2, they will kick you out of the synagogue. Jesus is talking not only about the world around. He is talking about the religious establishment that has the law and that rules the synagogue as the source of the hatred and persecution that his followers experience. He is speaking of the self-righteous religious world that does not want to be disturbed in its status quo and calls down wrath and condemnation and suffering on anybody who is more interested in following Jesus than simply fulfilling a set of humanly established rules. And we do that even in our own fellowship. We have an idea of what a real Christian ought to look like and how they ought to live. And oh, the tendency we have to cut off, exclude, and shun anyone who doesn't fit that pattern. But the pattern that really matters is the pattern of Jesus Christ. Not any sort of religious system, but who he is, how he lived, what he said, and why he died. There's our allegiance. There's our identity. And that is something that is worth suffering for. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I simply pray that you would take these feeble words and set them aside, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, speak in our lives through your word and what it is that you want to accomplish to draw us closer to Jesus, to conform us more closely to the pattern of his life, to bring yourself glory, somehow to bring yourself glory through us as we reflect the image of Christ. Lord, bless us as we consider these questions this week. And again, Father, we thank you for these two young ladies and represented in them every one of us that has declared our allegiance to Christ. Keep us faithful. Fill us with your spirit. Bring glory to yourself, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.